Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Morning, Garden. I live in Fullerton, the city right next to the happiest place on earth, so just 30 minutes away this morning. Glad to be here with you. Um, If you were here in the first service, welcome back. If you are not, here's what happened. Darren asked me to preach two weeks in a row, and scheduling didn't work out, so I said I'll preach two different sermons on the same morning, and it'll be like two weeks in a row. So I invited everyone from first service to come back, and I think I didn't do a good job because there's like three people back. But um, what that means is if this is a really bad sermon, you can either listen to the one online from the previous sermon, or you can just hold on for next week, okay? But you don't have to put up with me for two weeks, so... That's what we're doing this morning. Let me kind of give you a big arc of where we went and then where we're going to go this morning. Sound good? Okay, so we're talking about generosity. I know most of you are thinking like, I can't wait to talk about money and generosity when I go to church every day, especially for those of you who are this your first time. You're like, church is talking about money. Yes, I love that. That's what we're going to talk about this morning because what God says is that money, what we do with our money actually is spiritual. It's not just material. It's not just a transaction that we have. 
It's actually spiritual. It's a reflection of what's in our hearts. So how we use our money, don't use our money, save our money, store our money, give our money, invest our money, spend it, blow it, don't have any, whatever it is, is a reflection of what's in our hearts and of our relationship with God. Last service, we talked about money being like a dash, our hearts having a dashboard on them and money being one of the key indicators that's going to show how's my relationship with God doing or where is my relationship with God at? Now, before you get really nervous and start squirming in your seat and looking at the clock, I'm not going to ask you to sell everything that you have and give it away today, okay? <laughs> I don't believe it's better to be poor. I don't believe it's better to be rich. I, don't, I think God makes some people poor. He makes some people rich. He loves everyone, and the most important thing is to focus on him, okay? So don't get nervous yet, even though we're talking about money. But what I, what I do want to really make the connection for you is that money is an indicator light of how you're doing in relationship with God or what you actually believe about God. It's really, it's really easy to say, I believe and follow God. It's really hard to give money. Why? We, last service, we looked at two different examples, one being the parable of the rich fool who has this unbelievable year, crops are growing, so he's like, God is blessing me. I'm going to build a bigger barn so I can store all of my crops in there. And then I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. Yes, this is amazing. And Jesus looks at him in the end of the parable and says, you fool, tonight your life will be required of you. But there's a story also of a poor widow. She's got two copper coins. That's all she has to live on. And none of us would say to her, hey, mom, grandma, you got two bucks left. You know, I met with a financial advisor and your financial planner. What they, we all agreed upon is that you should give it, okay? <laughs> okay, Grandma? Like, Grandpa's not here. This is all you got. You're not going to know where lunch is going to come from, but give that $2 away. Nobody says that, except that's what this woman does in Luke chapter 21, and Jesus publicly praises her for it. He says she put in more because she gave all that she had to live on. In other words, her generosity was this declaration of my God is big. He's bigger than money. He can provide. I don't know what's coming in the future. I don't know where lunch and dinner are coming from, but I trust him and I'm willing to part with the stuff that feels like life. So what scripture presents us are opposite examples. In last service we talked about, you know, our culture is so much more like the rich fool building bigger barns going, if I get enough passive income, if I get financial freedom, if I retire by 40, if I get the bonus, man, God's blessing me. This is amazing. And we're a lot less like the widow who says, God, whatever you have, whatever you put into my hands belongs to you. I want to use it to honor you. I want to use it for your purposes and for your service. What we do with our wealth is a reflection of what's in our hearts. And God, we talked about, is the greatest giver. That money isn't just about percentages. It's not just about dollars and cents. It's not just about your paycheck. Ultimately, money is about God. We forget that. We think money is about us. But money is ultimately about God. And as we give, we get to be part of the grand story that God is doing. Do you know that the God of the Bible is the most generous person in all of history? That what we celebrate at Christmas is that he gave his one and only son. And we talked last service and I said, I got my son with me here today. I can't imagine trading him for anything. I can't imagine parting with him. I can't imagine giving him. I can't imagine showing up after this service, going home to my wife and my daughter. And she's like, hey, where's Malachi? I'm like, but I, I met this couple, and they really in need, and I really love them, and so I gave them our son, sweetheart. And she would say, right? you're done. And yet what we see in the gospel, what we see in scripture, and what we celebrate here at Christmas is that God did just that. He sees humanity in desperate need. 
There's no way we can ascend to God. There's no way we can, we can repay him for our sins. There's no way we can escape from sin, death, hell, and slavery. And so he does what we cannot do. What we cannot earn, he gives. And he freely gives salvation to us. The story of the Bible is a story of God's generosity. We reject him and he keeps giving. We reject him again and he keeps giving. And ultimately he gives his one and only son not just to enter our world and take on human flesh. God gave us his son to be crucified. Now, if I was even to entertain the thought of giving my son away, I would never entertain the thought of giving him away to be crucified. But that's what God did. The message of Christianity is the story of God. And it's the story of God's incredible generosity that we do not deserve. That was last service. If you want that in long form, <laughs> you guys can find out how to get that through this church website and all that. What I want to do this service is work that out. Okay, because what I've learned about generosity is it's not something that you feel a need for. Nobody woke up this morning and said, I can't wait to read the newest book about generosity. I can't wait and hope that I can grow in generosity today. That's never a felt need. And yet it's one of the most critical needs in our, in our world. We can make a tremendous difference as we give generously. Our hearts can find tons of freedom from worry as we learn to give. So it's a real need, but not a felt need. So how do we grow in a felt need that's not pressing in on us? Well, I, I think any kind of growth takes time. Any kind of growth takes community. Any type of growth takes a clear vision of where you're going and clear steps of how to get there. Are you with me? You, wanna, you, want, you drink too much. You're an alcoholic or you're denying that you're an alcoholic. What do you do? You go to Alcoholics Anonymous where there's a community of people there's a clear goal of what you're trying to achieve. There's practical steps that you work out over time. And millions of people have found freedom from the addiction to alcohol, right? You want to lose weight, what do you do? You join a gym, you get a trainer, you go to a Pilates class, you go to spin class, you go to Weight Watchers. There's a community of people running in the same direction. You don't lose all the weight in a day, right? <laughs> no, of course not. Over, it's a process over time with others and a clear goal and clear steps and you get there. So I can preach my guts out on a message on generosity and tell you God is amazingly generous, and he is. And you still probably at the end go, well, but what am I supposed to do about that? And I'm going to say, you get a community, you have a clear goal, you have clear actionable steps to get there, and over time, you grow to be generous, right? That's how growth actually happens in all of life. But we actually in the church have been very weak in discipling people in generosity, Money's been talked about so badly in church, been talked about in so many unbiblical ways in church and twisted ways in church and outside of church that we just kind of like, I don't want to talk about it at all. And if we don't talk about it at all, as a community, will we grow? No. No, we won't. And so what we see is that the evangelical church, on average, gives about 2 to 3% of their income, which isn't horrible, but I wouldn't call that succeeding, would you? Would you say that, on the whole, this is not an issue for us? Would you say that, on, a whole, on the whole, none of us are worried about money in this church? Nobody has any fears? We give to anybody who's in need? If you lose your job, you're not worried about it because you know the community here will take care of you or there's people in your house church who will just jump on it? Is that your experience? No. I'm not, I'm not shaming or guilting anyone, but I want to say, what if the garden was a place where this was a culture of generosity? 
What if this was a place where people knew they could come to find help? What if this was a place where people came excited to give? What if this was a place like we see all throughout scripture that people are joyful about giving and it's not guilt, it's not burden, it's not duty, it's joy, it's adventure, it's love, it's service. If that community existed, would you wanna be a part of it? Yeah, you would. So how do we get there is my question. Last service was like, how does that idea of generosity fit within who God is and what he's doing in the world? This, this message I want you to hear is how do we get there? So there haven't been a lot of ways to get there because most of the time in church and in my experience, and so I'm not talking about this church because I've only been here once before, so I don't really know this church that well. But in my experience, money's like, okay, we'll talk about it once when the budget's really low in December, hope you give and then run away and hide. <laughs> That's not discipleship. That's not a community over time learning to walk it out. I want to help infuse maybe a bit of that DNA. And I know that your pastor has already walked this out in a variety of ways. So here's what, here's what I did. I'm friends with a few guys from your church. I'm going to give you our experience, okay? This is going to be less of like a hard-hitting sermon and more of a lot of stories of our experience and trying to learn how to walk this out. So there were five of us, or six of us, that met for seven weeks at a house in Long Beach here every Tuesday or Thursday night. And we went through a process where we looked at a passage of scripture. We looked at some stories. I read, literally read them a chapter that I'd been writing about the new book. There was a practical action step. We did it, came back and we talked about it next week, read the next chapter, told some stories, read the next action step. We did it, came back and talked about it, just like going to the gym. I went back to the gym this week after being out of the gym for about 12 weeks. How, does that, how do you think that feels? Um, so, but it's a process. And you got to get up and go. So we did. And what I did was I created a little booklet. Uh, this is the beta version of my book. It's called The Working Titles Giving Together. I don't know if it'll end there or not. Um, and I'm make, making 30 of these available for your pastors for free in case your house churches and communities want to do something like this. So the rest of my message, I'm going to walk you through what we did and tell you some stories from this booklet and from our experience of how that went so that we can learn to be a community that's generous. You tracking with me? Yeah. All right, let me say this first off. I once had the chance to jump out of an airplane. The only problem was I didn't jump. <laughs> no. I was in a jumpsuit that was tightly attached to a guy that I had known for less than an hour. He said that he had done it several hundred times so I should not worry about it. And all I could do is trust him. But as every first-timer knows, that when that plane gets up to 12,000 feet and the glass door opens, everything within you says, this is absolutely crazy. This is not rational. It makes no sense. And so there I was, dangling on the side of the plane, because he's sitting on the side. I'm just flying outside for a few seconds. He grabs these metal bars on the side of the plane, goes, one, two, three, throws us out of the plane, and we free fall over New Zealand. And I screamed louder than I'd ever screamed in my life before. And it's like just this, my son is loving this story. <laughs> I want to tell you that giving is a lot like that. I want to tell you that sometimes you have to be flung out of the plane. Sometimes it's not going to feel comfortable, natural, rational, or sane. But once you actually experience it, it's totally exhilarating. And you'll be like, yeah, let's go again. Let's go again. Right? Giving is a lot like that. It's not always instinctive for us, but it's tremendously exhilarating. Giving is not what you've heard. Let me give you seven convictions 
from this booklet that are driving why, we did, why these guys from your church and I did this experience. Number one, we need to talk about money and giving. We need to talk about money and giving. Why? Jesus talked about money and possessions more than any other single thing. Let me say that again. Jesus talked about money and possessions more than any other single thing. More than faith, more than prayer, more than heaven, more than hell. Okay? Jesus knew the connection between our hearts and money. That's why he says, where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. And so he said, I want your heart. I'm really concerned with your heart. And what you do with your money is deeply connected to your heart. Anybody in here a basketball fan? Have you ever put 20 bucks in a March Madness pool? You don't even like basketball, but your office did it, so you did it. You don't even care who's going to win until you put 20 bucks in. And you're like, I love Kentucky. Go, Kentucky! You don't really care. But once your money got involved, your heart got involved, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Jesus knows that, and he deeply cares about your heart. So he was consistently talking about money. We need to talk about money and giving. It's the thing that we are most anonymous about in our culture and the church. How many people know how much money you make? Does your wife even know? <laughs> how many people know how much you have invested? How many people know how much you give? What Darren asked me to do since he was going to be gone this week is he and John printed out a giving statement of everything that everyone's given this past year. And on your way out, we're going to post it in the back so you can read your name and are you kidding me? <laughs> no way, right? <laughs> that would never happen. Because we don't talk about money. Even the people closest to you, men, you might confess sexual sins and struggles that you have to your boys, to your accountability partners, before you would ever tell them how much you made or gave last year. Why? Isn't that crazy? We are so shy about talking about money, but Jesus talked about it 25% of his time. Imagine if John and Darren just decided, yeah, we're going with Jesus. So next year, 2018, uh, at the Guard, we're going to preach on wealth, money, and possessions once a month. 25% of the time. Would you stick around? Would you even want to be here and hear that? Jesus knew we needed to hear that. So what I'm saying is let's kick the door open and start the conversation about money. Number two, number two conviction. We need a fresh start with money. I believe that you and I have heard thousands of sermons on money, just not in church. TV, movies, billboards, parents, friends, coaches, classes, ads of every kind have been preaching to you a message about wealth. What it is, how to get it, why to get it, what to do with it once you have it, what to spend it upon. You've heard thousands of sermons on wealth and money your entire life. You've been indoctrinated with a view of wealth. I want to say we've been shaped more by the world in our understanding of wealth and giving than by the word of God. We need a fresh start. Number three, the time to learn about giving is now. It is so easy to think, I'll learn to talk about giving and generosity like when I make it, when I hit it, when I'm out of debt, when I'm you know, down the road and I'm 45 and got the house and then we're fine, then we'll talk about it. I don't think so. Generosity is a seed that grows over time. And as financial professionals will tell you, those who work with ultra high net worth individuals, they give the least percentage of their income to charity. The people who generally give the most around the world are the poor. So the lie is, we'll talk about giving when I have it. It doesn't work like that. It is a seed that grows over time, and we need to, the time to plant the seed is now. Number four, 
we, we learned, the conviction driving this study we did, we learned to give by giving. If I wanted to get in shape, and I do, uh, what I would do is not just watch a bunch of YouTube videos about really buff guys. <laughs> Look at how they work out. Isn't that so cool? Look at all the fun stuff they do. It's like CrossFit, and they're throwing these medicine balls around, and they're running upstairs, and it's rocky, and it's like, that's not going to get me in shape. Now, that might motivate and inspire me to want to get in shape, but that actually doesn't get me in shape. So how many of you own exercise videos you've never watched? How many of you are subscribed to like these Pilates yoga girls? It's like, hey, it's only 10 bucks a month, and the videos come through, and you don't actually do them, right? <laughs> it doesn't get you in shape. Action gets you in shape. It gets you in shape physically. It gets you in shape spiritually. I can't just go, man, God is awesome, and I'm just going to grow as a Christian. No. There's something called spiritual disciplines. You have to read your Bible. Get to know the mind and heart of God. You have to come to church, worship with God's people. You have to learn to pray. You have to learn to give. You have to learn to serve. These are disciplines. Any kind of growth takes discipline, and we learn to give by giving. This is a core conviction. Number, number five, stewardship is part of our discipleship. Stewardship is not just a conversation for the 1%. Talking about generosity is not just for those, you know, way up on the hill somewhere. Talking about generosity is part of our steward, uh, it's part of our discipleship to be followers of Jesus Christ because Jesus talked about it a whole bunch. And he praised a poor widow and he condemned a man who was building a bigger barn. No matter which set end of that spectrum we're on, we need to talk about money and giving. Number six, conviction. God will use generous people to finish the Great Commission. Let me say that again, number six, God will use generous people to finish the Great Commission. A really good book on giving, a small book, if you like small books, is a, guy, a book called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. In that book, on page 83, Randy says this, or writes this, suppose God wanted to fulfill his plan of world evangelization and help an unprecedented number of suffering people. What gift would you expect him to distribute widely? Perhaps the gift of giving? And what might you expect him to provide for those to whom he's given that gift? Perhaps unprecedented wealth to meet all those needs and further his kingdom? Look around. Isn't that exactly what God has done? God will use generous people to finish the Great Commission. And number seven, God is the greatest giver. God is the greatest giver. He gave us his only son, after he gave us his son, he gave us his Holy Spirit to live in us and be with us. He gave us the promises of God, like, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He, promised, he gives us spiritual gifts. He gives us a kingdom to be part of and to be part of building. And he gives us a future, ultimately, where we will be with him in heaven forever. God is a giver. He is constantly giving. It's the heartbeat of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. When God loves, he gives. That's who he is. That's how he works. Giving is the opposite of what you heard, what you've heard and what you've been told. It's the opposite of the sermons that you've been listening to through the media. Giving is not an obligation, it's not a duty, it's not a guilt trip. Giving is a joy. It's an adventure. It's a partnership with God. I believe God made all of you to be givers because that's a reflection of who he is. We have an enemy who wants to slow you down. I want to help you floor it. I want to help you absolutely floor it and become radically generous, even if you don't want that for yourself. 
That's who God is. That's who he's making you into. Let's floor it together. Chapter one, joy. This is a fun story. My son is here. On my last birthday, I turned 37. And I sat down on the couch to open some birthday cards that came in the mail. And one came from my 86-year-old grandmother who lives in the Midwest. And she's very traditional, very lovely, very godly. Now she's 87. She just had a birthday. And uh, <clears throat> I, and we called her yesterday. And I opened this card from my grandmother, and out fell a $5 bill. And my son, Malachi, snatched it up really quickly. It's like sticky fingers. He just grabbed that thing. And he said, can, he said, can I have it? And I said, sure, buddy, but what do you, what do you want it for? And he said, um, I'd like to buy you dinner. <laughs> and he said, is this going to be enough? And I said, no, that's, that's not enough, but go get my wallet. So he knows where we keep our keys and our wallets. So he goes and brings my wallet back. And I hand him a 20. And he goes, is this going to be enough for our whole family? And I said, no, that's not going to be enough for our whole family. Here's another 20. He goes, is this going to be enough for our whole family? I said, yeah, that'll be enough. So we went out to Pyology, his favorite restaurant, and uh, <laughs> all ordered our pizzas. I lift Malachi up to the counter, and he's, I mean, this, he's a six-year-old kid at the time, rolling in $45 in his pocket. I mean, he was loaded, right? <laughs> and he gives the cash to the lady and pays her, and he, the kid's face was just beaming with joy. And we sit down at the table, we're waiting for our pizzas to come, and my daughter Willow looks over at Malachi and says very respectfully, Malachi, thank you so much for buying our whole family dinner. <laughs> and we all said the same. Thank you, Malachi. What a wonderful dinner for my birthday you purchased for us. <laughs> and our joy was through the roof, especially his. Why? Because the giver always gets the joy. It's how God designed it. Giving follows love, and giving leads to joy. Giving follows love. We give to what we love to, what we love, and giving always leads to joy. I'm talking about generosity today because I want you to have deep love in your heart for the Lord, and I want you to have great joy in what he's called you to be. Giving always leads to joy. When we go to the early church in the book of Acts, we see that this was their nature and character. When we see, see what, 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 is, what should the church be like in its handling of money, we see an unbelievable example right from the beginning. If you have a Bible, go to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, pull out your phone. If you don't have a phone, good job for leaving it in the car. Um, <laughs> props to you. Uh, you can pull out a phone and download Version Bible app for free, and you'll have 1,600 languages of the Bible on your phone at all times for free. Version Bible app, or if you're old school like me, just open the book. I like the book. Acts chapter 2. You guys still with me? All right, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2, 42. Glad I'm making sense to somebody. All right, and they, are you there? Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many signs and wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So many things I could preach for weeks on this exact passage. Verse 46, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And man, they must have felt horrible about it, right? We got to sell our possessions. We got to give it to the people in the church. Like this is such a burden, right? No. Nope. Verse 46, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Glad and generous hearts. Joy and generosity go together. What the world wants to tell you, and they give you half of the promise being right, is that happiness comes from money. Okay? If you have the car, you have the clothes, you have the whatever, you're going to get happy. And the truth is, you do get happy for about two weeks. But the main connection between money and happiness is not between having and happiness. It's between giving and happiness. There is a correlation between money and happiness, not having giving. This is what the church was all about, right, in the early, early days. It's no wonder the Lord added to their number day by day. Those who were being saved, the world had never seen a community like this before. Never seen a community like this before. Jesus must have risen from the dead, and the Holy Spirit must have fallen on that community because this doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. Who sells their possessions and gives it to anyone who has need? Not their closest relative, not their next of kin, not blood relatives. These are giving it to other people within the church family. This does not happen. It doesn't happen. This is what the church was about. And so I know some of you are like, yeah, okay, cool. That's one passage. So I get it. That was an anomaly. That's not what we're supposed to do today. Except you've turned the page. Go to Acts chapter 4. By the time the church grows to 10,000 people, the DNA is still the same. <laughs> Even more so. Acts chapter 4. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving the te their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, here's why he was a son of encouragement, watch this, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, this is Barnabas, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Do you think the apostles would be encouraged? Hey, this, this ministry in Jerusalem took off. Like we had 120 people last week. Then it went to 3,000. Now we're at 10,000. We don't know what we're doing. Jesus just left like a couple months ago, and we're pretty new at all this stuff, and now there's 10,000 people following us, and they came from all over the world because they were here for Pentecost, which was this festival, but when the Holy Spirit came, they stuck around. They decided not to go home. They wanted to be part of what God was doing here in Jerusalem, so they got needs. Some of them need places to live. Some of them need food, clothes, shelter. And Barnabas comes up, it's like, you know what? I have this nest egg. My parents gave me this piece of land. You know, 
it's, it was going to be my retirement. Uh, it's just been a family property, but you need it. So I sold it. Here's 100% of the proceeds. Use it as you need for this growing church of 10,000 people. And they're like, you know what a good nickname for you would be is son of encouragement. We love that. Right? And we love what that's a reflection of in your heart, that you're actually trusting in God more than you're a nest egg. You're trusting in God and willing to part with what you treasure for what you treasure even more. Barnabas had great joy, and the culture and DNA of the early church was joyful giving. So here's what we did. The guys and I, we said, all right, if the first place that the early church gave was to meet the needs of one another, let's do that. So I said to the guys, here's your assignment. Next week, go to church, meet a need. Well, but what need? I don't know. Just think about it. Is there a single mom? Is there someone who's struggling under the weight of debt? Is there a missionary who's back visiting? Is there someone who's unemployed right now? Is there someone who's just financially in a hard spot, a difficult season? Is there a need that the church has? Is there something you can do to go to church and meet a need? Pray about it. Ask the Lord. You have permission. You don't need an official assignment. You're not the JV team. You're varsity. Go make a difference. Shoot the ball. (laughs) So we left that week and came back. And I said, guys, how did it go? Four of the guys are from this church. Here's the fun mix of this group. I'm a writer. I lead a nonprofit ministry, but it was me, a business owner, a crane mechanic, an artist, a guy who makes commercials, and an insurance salesman. (laughs) How about that for a motley crew of a group? (laughs) But we come back, and I'm like, guys, how'd it go? And one of the guys in our group is like, you know, I was really praying about a need that I could meet in the church, and I didn't know anything, so I called the youth director or youth pastor. I was like, hey, you guys have a winter retreat coming up soon, right? Like, yeah, we do. Like, do you need anything? They're like, well, we actually, there's two kids who can't afford to pay, but they, they really want to go, and we think they need to be there. And he's like, done, done. I got them. What, what else can I do? What else? They're like, well, we found a van, but we need to rent it, and we need to pay for the gas and pay for the rental vehicle to get all the kids up to the camp. He's like, done, I got it, I got it. <laughs> How awesome is that? Another guy sees a girl after service in this church having a difficult day, and he didn't know her, so he moves towards her and says, is there anything I can do to help? And he instantly thinks it's going to be financial. He's like, maybe there's a, you know, because I'm looking to bless. I have this assignment. I have to fulfill it, right? Because I'm going to talk about it with the guys next week. So he goes to meet this need, and the girl's like, you know, actually, I, it's, it's not a need. I just struggling under the weight of some depression, and, um, you know, it's, it's just been a, a really tough time. He's like, okay, God, I want to pray for her. I want to give to her of what she needs, not just what I want to give. So he comes alongside and gives to her. We led another one of these groups in Silicon Valley, a couple of these groups actually in Silicon Valley. One of the guys said instantly that the Lord is putting a friend on their heart who is also depressed and he's not been able to pay for his therapy bill. So they had him over for dinner and they're like, if you want therapy, you go, we'll cover, the, we'll cover it. We want to take care of you. We want to see you get healthy again. Another couple in that group in Silicon Valley going through this experience had uh, a burden for an, another family in their church who was adopting. In the middle of the adoption process, adoption is not a cheap thing. You're often dealing with two different governments who don't speak the same language, who don't want to communicate. So there's tons of paperwork that flies around just to get it all so- sorted out. So she's like, we were so awkward. We wrote a little check and then put it in a card and then sealed the card. And we walked up to them on Sunday and then just kind of went like, here, and ran away. <laughs> Later, the couple comes back to them and says, we were totally in need of money for our adoption process, and we had no idea how to ask anybody for help. This is the first step towards us inviting other people to really partner with us in adoption. 
Do you see the joy in giving? Do you see the joy that increases in the body when we begin to act like the body? That was chapter one. Next week, chapter two. I was stumbling, uh, you guys have read the Bible, some of you, and you've probably read the Gospel of Luke. One day I stumbled across a passage in the Gospel of Luke that I'd never seen before. I mean, you, this happens all the time as we read the Bible. It's like, I read that, how come I've never read that? I've seen that, how come I've never seen that? This book is the eternal word of God, living and active. It's always speaking. God is always speaking through this book. So he's always going to show you either something you've seen and take it deeper, or something that you've never seen that you needed to see. And one day I was reading in the Gospel of Luke, and I read this. Soon afterward, this is chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward... Some of you are flipping there. Please flip there. I want you to see it in your own Bible. Sorry to rush you. Okay, Luke 8, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. These are 12 disciples. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. You've got to be kidding me. When God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth on a 33-year missions trip to rescue us from sin, Satan, death, and hell, he could have provided for his son in a number of ways. I'm just, I'll just drop him into a trust fund baby family and, and his needs will be set. Never have to raise money for ministry. This guy can just do whatever he wants. He doesn't ever have a need or a concern about ministry ever. That's not what God did. God could have said to Jesus, hey, look, here's my strategy for you. Remember when you turned, you know, the five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people? Maybe just one loaf and one fish and you can feed your 12 disciples every day for lunch and then just create a little bit leftover for dinner so you guys are just self-sufficient. You rely on yourselves. Or he could have said, you know what, uh, Jesus, um, what I really want you to do is turn water into wine, start the best winery in the Roman Empire, sell it, and we'll make a ton of bank for ministry. Right? That's not what he did. Or Peter, go cast your fishing net uh, or your fishing pole or whatever you're using back then and catch those fish with gold coins in their mouths and we'll do like one coin to pay Caesar's taxes and like two for ministry and just keep catching fish and I'll just keep making this happen and this is how I'm going to provide for my son for ministry. But that's not what God did. When God sent Jesus to earth as his son on a mission trip to save the world, his method of providing for him was three generous women who had to exercise faith, step forward and say, what do you need, Jesus? It says right here, Mary, Joanna, and Susanna. These are named characters. This isn't just a little passing thought. Named characters who provided for them out of their means. That meant Mary, Joanna, and Susanna had means of some kind. Joanna probably had significant means. She was the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Now, Herod was a very, very prominent guy, and his household manager was not like his butler. It was more like his investment banker or his property manager, his money manager. So Chusa's, or Herod's money manager was a guy named Chusa. Chusa's wife, Joanna, was one of Jesus' gospel patrons who provided for him out of her means. Think about this. 
What does this say about our generosity and how God wants to involve us in his story? Can you imagine getting to heaven one day and uh, God's like, okay, you believed in Jesus, check, you're in, grace, free. Okay, now, what did you do with what I gave you? You're like, well, I funded your son's ministry for three years. (laughs) It's like, what kind of ROI is that? That's the best investment in the world. He's like, okay, come on in, welcome, good use of your money. These three women have that story. And I'm telling you, we can have that story too. We can be a part of using what God has given us to fuel the ministry of Jesus even today. And it's not just we can be a part of it. That's how God works. When God is going to bring up a great revival, a great movement in in the history of the world, this is always how he works. I could tell you story after story on this all day long, but I won't. But here's the idea. When God wants to move in history, he's going to raise up someone who's going to preach the gospel, proclaim the word of God, announce it, trumpet it, herald it, translate it, teach it. And he's going to raise up others as their patrons to stand behind them, funding them, partnering with them, praying over them, strategizing with them to help them go further than they could have ever gone before. If you're a business person, you're like, what's my role in God's kingdom? I'm not a missionary. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a guy on a stage with a microphone. I, say, I would say you might be a gospel patron. That God has a role and a position for you to fuel his ministry. Not as the one who's going to announce it, but as the patron is going to come alongside people like that who do. This was the incredible role that Jesus had for Mary, Joanna, and Susanna. Partnership, when these pieces of the puzzle come together, partnership is how the gospel advances. So I said to the guys, the primary place that we need to begin our partnership is with our local church. And throughout the scripture, it talks about needing to provide for those who provide, provide for those materially who provide for us spiritually. 1 Corinthians 9 says that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It's right for some people to set aside their professions and careers to make announcing this good news of Jesus, which changes and saves all of our lives, to as many people as possible. It's right for that to happen. It's good for that to happen. And when that happens, there's going to be people like Mary, Joanna, and Susanna who come alongside to provide and fund to make sure that that can happen. So that your coworkers, your neighbors, your family can be reached with the good news of the gospel. You see, this is how God works. So I said, guys, here's what I want you to do. So often in church, what we tend to have this mindset is we think that like the pastors and the people on stage and the people on, the people on stage and on staff do the real work and we come like a concert. And we come like consumers and we come like spectators and we come to be entertained. But what if that wasn't the case? What if you were actually participants, strategic partners, and it was just a different role. So I'm up here speaking now, and you're sitting there now, but what if we were all actually members of the same team, and there's times that you pass me the ball so that I can shoot it, and there's times I pass you the ball, and you might be better at you know, a different aspect of the game than I am, but we're all a team actually working together. So I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to reach out to your pastors. I want you to ask them these questions. What's one thing that would completely transform your ministry this year and set you up for gospel success? Are there ways that I can give, talents I can provide, people that I could send that would be a game changer for you? Guys, there was four guys from your church. I don't know if any of them are in the room at this moment. But I was sitting there at the table when when I pitched this conversation. And then I just kind of backed up and watched the conversation that happened. Four guys in different vocations and different professions said, that's right. Our pastors work hard. They're tired. 
you know what, we, how can we bless them? How can we provide for them? And they began to strategize like they were a think tank. <laughs> They're like, okay, what we could do is we could do this and this and this and this. And all these ideas began flowing out because they all of a sudden were activated. Like, we can actually be real partners. We're not just spectators. We can use the stuff that we're good at every day, bring it to bear so that they can be stronger and more faithful to proclaim the gospel here in Long Beach. It was awesome, some of the stuff that came out of that. The guys, they wrote to the pastors here. I won't tell you all that, that, what happened there because that was a bit of a private conversation, but I'll tell you one thing that was really cool. The pastors of the church wrote back and said, you know, we're kind of doing this alpha ministry. You guys know about that? And uh, it's expensive to do a lot of the dinners, but the dinners are what bring people together. Free food, who doesn't like free food? Then when we have free food, we get a chance to ask questions and talk about God with people who have question, legitimate, real questions. But the dinners actually are super expensive, and as we roll it out, we want to reach more people, but the dinners are just, just kind of not in the budget. And our guys just, these four guys sitting together around the table just go, done. I don't know what the cost is, done. We're to take care of it, done. We want to see more people in the city of Long Beach reach for Jesus, and if we can pay for dinners, and they can run the ministry, and that can happen? Are you kidding me? How can we not do that? among other things that they did and are still in process doing to come alongside your pastors and say, we want to be partners. Now, it would have been totally legitimate for the pastors to say, hey, what do you need? What would be a game changer for you? And if the pastor said, if people just gave more and our budget was up, we'd be able to hire more and reach more people. So actually, what we really need most is people just to give. Okay, great. But I think we need to ask the question. And I think we need to think in this kind of mindset that we're partners. Chapter three, impact. My wife's grandparents, well, let me tell you, Marge and Andy Randazzo, Marge and Andy Randazzo, Italians, living in Chicago in the 1940s were people of impact. These people were attending a small storefront church outside of Chicago that was typically known for having student pastors. Pastors from Moody Bible Institute or Wheaton College would come to their little church. And they would cycle in for a couple of years. And in 1949, my wife's grandfather became the pastor of this little storefront church. And Marge and Andy Rondazzo came up to uh, my wife's grandfather. I'll just call him Grandpa because he's kind of more, he's my grandpa now. And they said, Royal, which is his name, Royal Peck. Royal, you're not very missions-minded. If you ever get the chance to go outside of the country on a mission trip, the first $500 will come from us, they said. And I can still remember my grandpa, who's 91 today, saying, $500, my monthly salary was $100 a month. That was a pretty big offer. So they offered 500 bucks, and a year later, Youth for Christ came knocking at my grandpa's door, and they said, we're sending 100 teams to evangelize Europe this summer. We need an evangelist, we need a worship leader, we need like a, somebody else, three, teams of three. We want you to be the evangelist on one of those teams. And he said, okay, I'll pray about it. Turns out, they had to raise $1,500 to go on, the, on this mission trip. Marge and Andy Rondazzo were faithful to their word, gave the first $500. Over a period of time and a longer story, my grandparents raised the other 1000 that they needed back then. And my grandpa went to Sweden all summer long and evangelized and preached and told people about Jesus in a place where not very many people know him. Two years later, another missions guy knocked on their door, and he said, Royal, we'd like to start a Bible school in the city of Rome, the eternal city. Rome is such a stronghold of Catholicism, and many people in Catholicism, especially in Rome, don't really know and follow the Bible. They know and follow a lot of rules and traditions, but they don't actually know and follow the Bible. So we want to start a Bible school there, and we want you to start it. 
And my grandparents said, okay. And so they raised money. And in 1955, were the first missionaries granted visas after World War II, and they sailed on a boat with their three sons for months to get to Italy, where they'd spend the next 42 years preaching the gospel, starting a Bible school, leading people to Christ, and training the next generation of pastors and evangelists in the country of Italy. And when I look back on their life and their legacy, they're now in their 90s, grandpa's not going to hang on that much longer. What I think about is Marge and Andy, Rondazzo, and that first $500. What if they had not challenged my grandpa with that? What if they had not put their money on the line, which $500 is not a small amount even today, but back then it was more significant, and they put it on the line to say, we want to be people of impact. Now, generations of my family have followed Jesus because of them. Grandpa and Grandma, told, we grew up with them telling us stories. <laughs> I started dating my wife at 17, so it feels like we grew up, and they were my grandparents even from then, 20 years now. They told us amazing adventure stories with God, how Grandpa got once thrown in prison for preaching the gospel, and how they set up the first tent campaign outdoors in the open air in Italy, how they would plant these missionaries and start these churches all over the place in Italy. And we've said, God is real. We want to follow him, no matter what the cost. Now three generations of their you know, kin have gone on to be missionaries in some of the remotest parts of the world. Why? I think partly because Marge and Andy gave $500 in 1950. $500. And they changed the course of my family's life. Impact is a word that God wants for you. He wants your life to make an impact. The American dream says... Get through college, get a decent job, make a little bit of money, get married, get a house, have a couple kids, okay, get done with that, save some money for the kids' college, get them in college, save money for retirement, get that, okay, then the kids get married, pay for the weddings, okay, then you retire, and you fulfill your bucket list, you travel, and you die. There's no God, there's no Jesus, and there's no impact in a life like that. Well, there's impact on your children. I'm not saying that. But you're made for more than that. God has a great and glorious plan. He's working out in the world, and he wants to involve you. He wants to involve you. You don't have to be involved. Impact is voluntary. You can make it to heaven with no fruit and no impact. I'm convinced. Thief on the cross. Jesus, you know, remember me as you come into your paradise and in your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What impact did that guy have? None. What fruit did he bear that would last for eternity? None. But he had faith at the point of his death. Was he saved? Of course he was saved. But his life didn't make a difference. A lot of us think, I'll wait to make an impact till I'm old, or I'll wait till I make an impact till I have money, or I'll wait to really do something significant with my life till blah, 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 blah. I'll wait to really follow Jesus till I'm like my grandmother's. No, don't. You'll miss the life that God wants for you and the impact he could make through you from 500 bucks. So our assignment this time was to think about the impact God wants us to make and the fact that God is working out his story in this amazing global story. That at the end of the story, at the end of this book, what we know to be true is that it ends around a throne with God and his son Jesus Christ seated upon the throne and there's a great multitude of worshipers surrounding the throne like in a stadium kind of atmosphere, like Olympics, from every tribe and language and people and nation, from all of human history. The worshipers of God have been gathered, and the king seated on the throne, and he introduces his son to the, his bride, the church. 
And the people of God become one with God and they see his face forever and ever and celebrate his great and awesome name. The story that God is working out is a global story. And so our challenge was, guys, it's so easy in California to get our eyes just stuck on California, stuck on our lives, stuck on our situations. But if God is working in the world, let's lift our eyes to what he's doing. So here was the assignment. Go to an ethnic restaurant. Mexican food doesn't count. Chinese food doesn't count. Right? Go to an ethnic restaurant that you would not normally go to. And before you go, do some research on the country so you're prepared. I want one guy to just go CIA World Factbook. What's the demographics? What's going on with the, you know, how do they make money in that country? How many people are in the country? How big is the country? Where, you know, what's the history of the country? But I want another guy to do a little bit of current events. What's going on today in this nation? I want someone else to do a little bit of spiritual research. What's God doing in this country? Let's look up how we can pray for this country. What are the spiritual climate and needs of that country? And then let's come together over dinner and we'll talk about it and pray for that nation. Because here's what Jesus says. When Jesus looks at the, world, the fields that are white for harvest and the people who need him, he sees the fields are white for harvest and the first thing he doesn't say is go. The first thing he does say is pray. And so I said, if we're gonna fulfill this impact mandate that God has on our lives, let's begin in prayer. So I asked the guys, where do you wanna go? And they said, Cambodian food. They said there's the second largest population of Cambodian people in Long Beach out of anywhere else in the world, I believe. I think maybe out of anywhere else outside of Cambodia. There are more Cambodians in Long Beach than anywhere else. So we say, great. One guy booked the restaurant. Three guys did the research. I just got to show up and eat. It was awesome. And we show up to this Cambodian place. I've never been to Cambodian food. I love Thai food, but we, tr we tried it. And as we're talking about the research, and one of the things that st stood out to the guys as they kind of looked into the history and the needs of Cambodia is, if you know anything about the, the killing fields in Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge that came in and basically massacred people in the 70s. It was horrific. And it totally devastated the country. And we were talking about this over dinner, and our waitress comes over, and I said to her, are you Thai or are you Cambodian? She said, I'm Cambodian. We said, when did you come? She said, I... Sorry, I walked for 72 hours with my mom and younger sister to escape the killing fields in Cambodia while six of our other siblings were murdered. <laughs> All of a sudden, praying for Cambodia got a little bit different, right? Here's a real person who really lived through that tragedy, walked 72 hours with her mom and younger sister, and she's serving us a meal. So we prayed. God, would you do something in Cambodia? We're so small. We're six guys. What can we do? But you're the eternal almighty God who's gathering worshipers from every tribe, tongue, and language, and we know you can gather them in from Cambodia. And in, in, in a place that's lost and broken and riddled with sex trafficking, God, you're bigger than that, God. You're an amazing God. You can come and overcome difficulties in government and politics and corruption, and you can speak to these people, God. You can reach them somehow. You can send more missionaries. You can raise up more churches, God. Would you do it, God? Would you do it? And that night, for one night, we focused on making an impact in Cambodia through prayer. Lastly, last chapter. There's a story in the Bible that we really hope no one ever preaches, basically, because uh, it's just one of those ones where, like, please don't, just don't give me the story of the rich young ruler. I don't know what to do with that, and it's awkward, and you know the story. A man comes to Jesus. 
He's very religious. He follows most of the Ten Commandments. And he comes to Jesus and says, good teacher. We're in, sorry, Mark chapter 10, for those of you who are following along here. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark chapter 10, verse 17. So he's a religious guy with, with an ache in his soul because he knows he's not saved. Do you know there's a lot of religious people out there who are not saved and they know they're not saved? They feel some sort of connection, some sort of openness to God, some sort of following rules, some sort of worship, some sort of sacrifice, some sort of service, but they know they're missing something. That was this guy. And he comes to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Now he's asking the wrong question, right? Because we know we can't do anything to be saved. It's God who does the saving. But he's thinking, if only I could maybe be a little bit better, and I'm a perfectionist, so if I work a little bit harder, and I show up a little bit more often, I give a little bit more money, I say the right things, I do the right things, maybe then God will be happy with me and save me. So Jesus has this awesome interaction with them. He says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Now, we got a list of the Ten Commandments there. We didn't get all of them. We got, I think, five or six. Interestingly, what Jesus leaves off is worship God only. Don't make any idols. And lastly, you shall not covet So here's what Jesus says to him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him, said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He had his moment with Jesus. One-on-one encounter with Jesus Christ himself in the flesh. Can you imagine that? He comes up to you. He listens patiently to your question. He interacts with you a little bit about it. And then you walk away sad because you were unwilling to follow him. Why was he unwilling to follow him? Because of what Jesus said. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus knew that this man's idol, this man's God, was his money and possessions. And so Jesus says elsewhere in the Bible, you can't love and serve God and money. You must choose. It's not okay to have being rich the number one goal in your life and be a Christian. Some of you, that is your number one goal. You're still like, I want to retire at 30 or I want to retire at 40 or I just want to make it. If I make it, then I'm going to be good. That's, those are incompatible. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It will leave you destroyed. It doesn't satisfy Please, listen to me. This is what scripture says. This is the testimony of history. Look around at Hollywood. Does money make people happy? No. Does it make their marriages last? No. Does it satisfy? No. Then why are we chasing it? Why are we looking to it like it can save us or make us complete? It can't. And Jesus knows this about this man, and he calls him to lay down that idol and come follow me. And the man doesn't. It's an unbelievable story. And one thing we miss in this is that we think Jesus is being a little harsh. Really sell all that you have? Please don't call me to do that, Jesus. (laughs) That's why we don't want this preached. 
sell all, like, like everything, like be poor, Jesus? Like, like I mean, come on, like, can't, what about my family? What about my needs? What about, Jesus says, sell all that you have and come follow me. Now, I don't think Jesus calls everyone to do that, and here's why. When Zacchaeus comes to Christ in Luke chapter 19, remember, he's the short guy who climbs the tree. Jesus says, I want to come to your house and have lunch. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And through this amazing lunch that Zacchaeus has with Jesus, Zacchaeus realizes that he's been misusing and mismanaging his position as a tax collector. He's been stealing from people, essentially. So in the middle of his lunch, he stands up and he says, if I've defrauded anyone, I repay it fourfold, and half of my possessions I give to the poor. Half. And what Jesus doesn't say is half, Zacchaeus. That's not enough. What Jesus says is, today salvation has come to this house. Because you're flipping your view of money. You're flipping it so it's not orbiting around you. It's orbiting around God. It's not your idol anymore. You're free, Zacchaeus. Salvation has come into your heart. Praise God. So Jesus doesn't call everyone to sell everything that they have and give to the poor. But he does call this rich young ruler. But what I want to tell you is that we often miss a really significant part of this story. What we miss is we think, Jesus, come on, sell everything? Like like the man had to give everything up. But the truth is, Jesus was asking him to trade everything in. It was an exchange. It was an eternal investment opportunity. Look at what it says. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Trade in your earthly currency now that will last you for 70 or 80 years at best. Trade it in where you will get treasure that will never rust or rot or be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I want you to actually have something that will last forever. If you had a friend who said, I have this killer investment opportunity and man, this new business, this new startup, if we get in now, we're going to get, we're going to hit it big in 10, 20 years. It's just going to boom and you'll be in. You'd be like, tell me more. That's what Jesus is saying. I have an investment opportunity that will last forever and ever and ever. Do you want in? Because those who go big in the stock market bought Walmart at $1 or Amazon at 50 cents or Google at 30 cents. They got in big. They went all in big early, and then their payout is huge. Jesus is inviting him, go all in with me. Go all in, and the payout will be huge, just not here. It'll be paid out there. He wants us to be motivated and driven by this idea of eternal rewards. So I said to the guys, um, here's our assignment. Jesus doesn't call us to sell everything that we have, but he does. I want us to feel what it would have been like for the rich young ruler. I want us to just taste a little bit of that experience. So sell one thing you have and give it to the poor. Now, I know you guys got bank accounts. I know you have savings accounts. I know you got investment accounts, whatever. I'm not saying give out of that. I'm actually saying Learn to give out of your possessions. Part with something that you once purchased and valued and give it up for something you value even more. Try it. And guys, I came back that next week and I was nervous. It's like, oh no, how's this gonna go? And one of the guys in your church is like, I'll go. Okay, what'd you do? He's like, as soon as you dropped that assignment on us, it was like the Holy Spirit told me exactly what I was supposed to do. He's like, I'm a record collector, like vinyl records. I'm like, cool guy, I listen to records. And the Lord said, sell them. 
sell your record collection. So I said to the guy, I'm like, how many records did you have? He's like, thousands. I said no price limit on this. I was like, you follow the Lord, you follow the Holy Spirit, whatever he tells you to do. The guy goes, thousands of records. And he's like, the Lord convicted me that I'm like, I was trying to be, hey, I'm a cool guy, I'm a surfer guy, I'm a guy who listens to vinyl records. And God's like, why can't you just be a guy who follows me? <laughs> why do you need all that other stuff, right? So the guy's like, I want to involve my kids. So we loaded up all the boxes of records in our car, drove it down to a record place, and because we only had a week to complete the assignment, I didn't sell it online because I knew that would take forever, and I was going to get less money, but I wanted to do it, and I wanted to complete the assignment. So I drop all these boxes on the counter of the record shop, and he's like, told the guy, just, just pick through what you want, and don't tell me what you're going to take, because I don't want to know what I'm going to miss. So the guy spends a while looking through them, and calls him back over, and his, calls his kids back over, he's like, yeah, I, I, uh, I'll take 25% of your records. And this guy in your church is like, yes, I got to keep 75%. But he said I got a really significant chunk of change for that 25% of my record collection. And my kids and I were praying about who to give it to. And so what we did was um, we got home that day from the record store, and there was something in the mail from a, an organization that the garden partners with in India. And I looked at it, and the kids looked at it, and were like, this is it. This is it. And they said, for the price of 25% of my records, we could put a kid and a half in school and fed for a year in India. So he's like, we wrote the check, you know, we, we gave it. Kid and a half in school, fully fed, educated for a year in India. And he had no disappointment on his face when he's sharing this. It was all joy. It was all, I'm looking forward to what's better. So another guy in the group goes, me too. As soon as you dropped the assignment on me, I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. I have a gold coin. Actually, I have several gold coins. And they're just in a drawer, and I kind of collect them because I do business, and I don't know, I just like them and whatever. And I felt like the Lord just told me exactly which one to sell. So I went down to the Inglewood where there's like this gold whatever it's called. Some of you guys know the technical terms for these kind of things. And it's like you just give them the coin. like well, They weigh it. They give you cash right there. No receipts, no accounting. They just buy gold for cash. And he's like, so I got the cash, and now I'm thinking about what to do. I get home, and in the mail that day, there was something from Food for the Poor. He's like, my wife and I have donated to Food for the Poor in the past, so I started looking through their catalog in the, that, that they had sent in the mail. And then I call him and say, if I give this money, does it actually go to those things, or is it just sort of representational of those things when I give the money? And they're like, no, it actually goes to those things. So this guy from your church says, for the price of one gold coin sitting in a drawer, I was able to fund 150 chickens for a village in the Caribbean, five goats, five pigs, two bicycles, and five soccer balls <laughs> for the price of a gold coin sitting in my drawer. And then he, go and then he goes, is that even generous? Because I have more gold coins. I'm like, I don't know, but that was an awesome step, right? <laughs> like, well done. So I'm preaching this story a month ago at a place in Lake Tahoe. I tell this exact story of the guy who sold his gold coin. I got a text two weeks ago. This guy who was there says, I felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking directly to me as you told that story about the gold coins. It's like, how could you know? I have gold coins. What am I doing with them? Why? The kingdom of God is coming, and I got gold coins sitting in a drawer. <laughs> so he's like, 
I went down to the gold place. I sold them. $40,000 are now put into the kingdom because you, I heard that story of you selling gold coins. I want my resources to be invested in what God is doing instead of just sitting in some stupid drawer collecting dust. Right? This is the gospel that God invites us into. We get to be part of the mission of him bringing his kingdom, showing his love, revealing himself to the world. And most of the time, we want the iPhone 10 instead. Come on. Am I right or am I right? You know it. We just want the shiny little dumb stuff. When he's like, the rich young ruler had the opportunity. You know what, he missed? You know what the rich young ruler missed out on? If he sells everything, puts it into the kingdom of God at that moment, I believe he goes on the adventure with Jesus for the next year or two. I believe he joins the 12 disciples. I believe he gets to see Jesus heal, do miracles, cast out demons, listen to his private teaching and explanation of the parables, hear his public sermons to the masses, watch him divide five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000, watch him feed 4,000, watch him raise the dead, cleanse lepers, heal the sick, open the eyes of the blind. And instead, he didn't want to go on the adventure because he was blinded by the love of money and his love of his possessions. The call to be radically generous is not a call to give something up. It's a call to gain so much more. We don't see it that way. Like I said, the world has it twisted backwards and upside down. What you've heard and believed about generosity is not true. But I want to beat the enemy this morning. There's an enemy who wants to get in the way from you living this way and fix you on being secure and comfortable. And what I want to say is the rich young ruler was really secure and really comfortable. But he didn't make an impact and he didn't bear fruit for all eternity. I don't want that for you. I want so much more. So if this is an adventure you want to go on with your house church, we're just testing this out. This is in beta form and I have 30 of these with John, and you can talk to him to get one and try it out with the family, with your family, with your community. Say, so let's just try those four things and see what God might do in our lives. Not sell everything, but take four initial steps to become the kind of people who change the world through our generosity. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org. Space for your presence to dwell and to move.